Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. I thought we should start today by explaining why we're doing it in a slightly different format than usual. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically, I have a bit of confession to make to the listeners. We were going to do a podcast and we have done a podcast with somebody and I actually managed to oversleep. And by the time I wake up, <laughs> Neil the, had finished recording The it. bird had flown. <laughs> and after I got thoroughly ticked off for letting the side down, school down, podcast down and so forth, we sat around, scratched our heads to think what we should do. And we decided we'd top and tail it with a discussion between us. But what a show I missed because it was a, it was a fantastic uh, episode. We got back an old friend of the show, Jim Levis, who is the bond guru from M&G, the investment management firm. Yeah. And he's also, what was he, bond, Mr. He, bond Vigilantes. Well, he, his, his show is called Bond Vigilantes yeah. within M&G. I thought it's a really great title. Anyway, so we got him back to talk about the state we're in. And to be honest, it's not looking great. <laughs> bond yields have been going up on both sides of the Atlantic. And the 10-year UK yield, that's the kind of benchmark, is now higher than it is in Greece. Not good, given that Greece has spent roughly half the time since its independence in 1823 in default. <laughs> so <laughs> so good hope. for us. <laughs> a triumph of hope over experience, if ever there was one. Anyway, uh, it's, yeah, it's not just bonds. Shares, which were going up earlier in the year, have retreated. They're down about 7% from their peak. And oil prices, always a sort of harbinger of doom, I've been going up again. Yes. You've probably noticed the price at the yeah. pumps. Uh, yeah, I about had to, 10 pence a litre higher than it was a month ago. Yeah, I had to drive up to the country yesterday and I noticed every five miles I got further away from London, the price actually went up. <laughs> Maybe it's a timing thing. And it's also obviously a year on from the Brief Trust Premiership. And we'll reference that in this. And if you're interested in that. It's also worth listening to our episode from two weeks ago called The Trustquake, if you haven't managed to do so yet. But first, let's go over to Neil and Jim and their conversation. The UK government, as we can see, is borrowing money like never before at prices which we've not seen for, what, 20 years, I guess, paying 5% for its uh, new debt. And we are joined today by Jim Leavis, who has been studying this extraordinary market, this large, febrile, quite world-scale market of government securities for many years, I would say. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I would like to go straight in and say, last time you were here, you sounded really quite relaxed about prospects for the ability of the UK government to fund its debt on the assumption that the the economy could, in the long term, grow faster than the mountain of debt that it was accumulating. Do you still think that? Yeah, good question. I, th I think I'm a little less relaxed than I was the last time I was here, for obvious reasons, that we've seen a massive government bond sell-off, both in 2022 and so far in 2023. So the scale of the rise in yields that we've seen globally is it's not unprecedented, but it's one of the biggest shocks to bond markets that we've seen. 
that hasn't really fed through into other asset classes yet, which is, I guess, a question for another day, because after all, bond markets are the bedrock foundation of all asset class valuations. So it does pose a risk to wider asset class valuations and indeed stability. But to your specific question, does it mean that the UK and other government bond markets are in trouble? The thing we talked about last time was that as long as your growth rate is of a sufficient level, then you can carry on paying your debt. And I think that remains true. So whilst we have seen a rise in debt to GDP ratios for developed markets like the UK, the US, Germany, of say 30% of debt to GDP, now we're up at 100%. We do have real world examples of governments like the Japanese, of course, where they're able to run debt to GDP ratios of 250%. We've also seen in the period after World War II, that even the UK has run higher debt to GDP ratios than this. So it's not a one way street, you can get back to lower levels. And I think the thing I've been pondering the last few days is actually, who said that 100% is high for a government that has the ability to tax and has the ability to print its own currency. Japan shows it's 250, could it be 500? Is there a limit? And I know the answer for you and me is is there must be somewhere, there must come a time where people say enough is enough. But I think that capitalism is still pretty young. We, we haven't got many experiences of the UK getting into debt difficulty, perhaps the IMF incident in the 70s, but there aren't many examples that tell us where that limit is. Yes. If you're looking at the awesome debt mountain that we've managed to accumulate, how much is it helped in future by the surge in inflation, which has obviously reduced the real value of the existing debt? Inflation generally helps. It will help some governments more than others. Unfortunately for the UK, as you know, we have 25% of our debt stock in inflation-linked bonds. And that means that, you know, one for one, as inflation goes up, our borrowing costs go up. So that's slightly unhelpful. But we also have 75% that is fixed in nominal terms. I would say, though, I mean, if you looked at the US, for instance, because it's been borrowing so heavily in one-year and two-year paper, that's less helpful. You can't really inflate that away to the same extent because you haven't locked in those low interest rates for a very long time. So it will depend a bit on the length, the duration of your debt stock. For the UK, we've got a very long debt stock, so inflation will help there. But the inflation-linked debt is a, a counterweight to that. So inflation is helpful, but also remember that a lot of what the government spends its money on is linked to inflation as well. So pensions, the triple lock. So it's not just that the debt stock can be inflated away. Actually, government spending will be going up in line with inflation quite a lot as well. So that's unhelpful. OK, so let's pause for a second. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, Jim, although he's still a bit more sanguine than you, Neil, is a lot less cheery than he was when we saw him last Christmas to talk about the national debt. Yes, well, things have deteriorated significantly since then. Well, he's still fairly relaxed about the size of government's borrowings. 
thinks it should be broadly financeable. There's a lot of talk about how the free market generally finds a way. We've had a much higher national debt in the past, 250% of GDP after the war. That came down to about 25% in the early 1990s. I think anybody who thinks that's going to happen again is deluding themselves. Well, I agree. So I think there are two things which which he he sort of touches on, and they both helped the UK achieve that pleasurable trajectory after the war, which are now much more doubtful. One is obviously our old friend economic growth, and the second, which you talked about, is the ability to inflate the debt away. Because while we can do some of that, and it helps that the UK tends to lock in borrowings for longer than, for example, in the US... You know, around a quarter of gilts is inflation linked. And that means it's much harder to pull off that trick of watching your debts sort of gently scrunch down over the years. Anyway, let's let's go back to the tape and, and rejoin the next section. So from the long to the short, most government bonds in the UK are yielding about 5% now, give or take. And we appear to be getting towards the top end of the escalator of bank rate. What's your thoughts on that? We had a pause from the Bank of England. We've had a pause from the European Central Bank. The market thinks the Fed has got one more rate hike in it by the end of 2023 before it too pauses. The question is, the term that gets banded around all the time at the moment is table mountain. You know, there's an expectation that the US economy is so strong and fundamentally robust to be debated. It appears to be slowing somewhat, but employment is still strong, that we're going to get away with a soft landing. And a soft landing means that the Fed will keep rates and other central banks will keep rates at kind of plateau for a long time before they cut them. History, though, shows that A, soft landings don't really happen. They're as rare as hen's teeth. Everyone's really optimistic about a soft landing till actually the unemployment rate does start going up quickly. We've seen that a bit in the UK. House prices come down. History shows us that whatever your hopeful expectations of a soft landing are, actually central banks cut rates about eight months after they finish hiking rates. So that plateau is is not quite table mountain shape. It's a lot more quickly likely to come down than that. And I think that's probably most people, that you know, the market's saying a plateau, but the chances are it won't be a plateau. So, sorry, you're saying, in your view, that the impact of past rate rises as it uh, works its way through the economy will mean that the landing is a good deal less pleasant than we expected, and that will push the banks into earlier rate cuts. That's what you're saying. My hope is that we do have a soft landing, but it would be it would be one for the history books, uh, given going from zero to 500 basis points of interest rate tightening will have an impact. You know, we're seeing that on the mortgage rate resets in the UK. The housing market has stopped transacting in the US because mortgages aren't portable. If you want to move house, you have to take out a new mortgage. You have fixed rate mortgages there for 30 years. If you took one out a couple of years ago, you'd be paying two and a bit percent. Now, if you want to move house, you're going to be paying seven and a bit percent. Who's going to move house under those scenarios? And the multiplier effect from that when you move house, you buy a new carpet, you probably buy a new car, a new telly, new clothes, you know, you buy new everything. The realtor, the broker that does your mortgage, the people in the banks, there's a huge industry linked to housing. It's about social mobility as well. It's about economic mobility. There will be an impact from higher interest rates, both for households, 
the financial sector, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, these are all symptomatic of rising interest rates. So I think that the lags have been longer this time round. Partly that's because of the money that people built up during COVID furlough schemes. We saw then that savings in America really went through the roof. On average, the lower income households had 107% of their usual savings post-COVID. High income households had 130% of their savings. Now, everyone has less savings than they did going into COVID, apart from the very richest. And so the money has run out, interest rates are higher. I would be incredibly surprised to see the benign Goldilocks land of, of a soft landing, but I'm not going to rule it out. Sorry, you mean in America this is, because that's where the tone is set for the rest of the Western world. Yes, exactly. America will set the tone. It's highly unlikely the Bank of England or the ECB will start cutting interest rates before the Fed. You know, history shows us, and the same is true for emerging markets, that is going to send the signal for all central banks to be able to start cutting interest rates. But the same sort of stories about housing costs and so forth are true in the UK and elsewhere, equally true, even though our mortgage structure is slightly different to that of the States. So let's just pause again for a second. It's worth unpicking what Jim is saying about the economy here, because it's basically a common theme at the moment about rising yields, falling share prices. And it's really not just happening in the UK. It's also a theme, particularly in the US. The worry around the world is that we're not going to get a soft landing. We're going to basically come to a pretty sharp stop at some point. As history would suggest that soft landings are almost impossible to pull off. Yes. Well, you remember that famous case of the man who landed an aeroplane in the Hudson River. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be uh, on that that plane nine times out of ten because yes, I think don't he try was it uh, on the Thames. It's not a surprise that he's become a kind of rather famous hero about whom films have been made. So Jim's scepticism is pretty broadly felt at the moment, and here he is again. I think we can agree that the Bank of England was asleep at the wheel when it failed to raise interest rates when it was clearly obvious that they needed to be done. I probably would have made the same mistake. You know, I, I kind of don't blame them. You only have to look at the ECB during and after the periods of the global financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis. They hiked into those scenarios and caused immense damage to the Eurozone economy. And given what central banks had lived through for the past couple of decades, their default was to fear deflation round the corner and you know inflation always had been transitory so I'm less blameful of them for making those decisions as you but obviously in retrospect <laughs> uh, you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> no I think that's very generous of you to uh, support the governor. Do you think that they have roughly the right stance today? Yes I think they're also right to pause and see because I think that the big question for central banks is really why have we not seen a bigger slowdown in economic growth given the 5% of rate hikes we've seen in most of the developed world? Why is that employment situation still so rosy generally across the world? So I think they're right to pause. You know, they can always start hiking again. And for me, one of my big worries about in the UK, for instance, is that, and this is really what's causing the most recent bond market sell-off that we're seeing over you know, the end of September, is around the oil price going up again. Because one of the things, Rishi Sunak's obviously made this great 
promise that he's going to halve inflation down from 10 to 5 by the end of 2023. That was, at the time, the easiest bet to make in the world because a lot of inflation forecasting is simply looking at where the price of petrol was a year ago and where it is now. It's all about base effects. It is baked in the cake to some extent that unless the oil price were to have gone up again by the same amount it went up between 22, 23, you know, you need that momentum to continue at the same pace Mm. of rises just to keep inflation standing still. So it was always going to plummet over the course of this year. But over the course of September and really since June, WTI and Brent crude oil prices have gone up by 30-35%. And so the base effects that central banks will be facing this time or in the, you know, 2024 will be moving from being a tailwind to being a headwind. And yes. so suddenly inflation might make a return even as core inflation plummets. But really headline is what people feel and it's what the newspapers will focus on. So that's going to be the difficulty for central banks. Yeah, well, certainly if you see what's happening with the price of petrol, that will certainly register. Do you think that the bank understands where we are in monetarist terms, in terms of the money supply in the economy and what it should be doing to unwind the QE where it bought all these bonds to stimulate the economy during the COVID and recession before that? I think the answer is no. As I say, capitalism, pretty new economics pretty new <laughs> it's in a wonderful idea that capitalism is is relatively it's really new. it's really yeah. new it's we're, too we're, early to tell it's, it's too early to tell as the, the chinese <laughs> uh, uh, would say um they don't know my first job at the bank of england when i joined in the 90s was measuring m naught and m4 narrow money and broad money this was the focus of economic policy making then and as charles goodhart around that time who you know famous economists implied once you start it's a bit like a particle physics or something if you start studying it it stops <laughs> behaving in the way that you thought it would and so almost immediately at that time money supply stopped being a useful indicator of inflation now everyone's looking at it saying oh well look at the money supply it went up and so obviously inflation was going to come back well that wasn't true post global financial crisis mm. it is true this time round Funnily enough, people are now saying, actually, look at US M2, which is their kind of equivalent of broad money, the the widest measure of money, a bit like RM4. That's collapsing into negative territory. If you did the charts now, you'd be saying that Powell should be panicking about deflation rather than inflation. So I think it's one of those things that remember that the economics 101 equation around inflation is MV equals PT. PT being prices, and we we, we can measure M, we can't (laughs) measure V. So M is the amount of money, V is the velocity of money. That kind of falls out of the equation. So whenever whenever it stops working as an indicator for inflation, we all say, ah, but maybe money's flowing more quickly or more slowly than we thought it is around the economy. So Mm. as long as we don't really understand V, it's a pretty useless indicator anyway. (laughs) Yes. Would be nice to know whether we're all going to spend money like drunken sailors next year or whether we're going to sit on our savings and uh, hunker down for a rainy day and that is human psychology which doesn't lend itself to uh, rational analysis well Jim thank you very much it's very good to see you again if you're 
very unlucky, we'll ask you in for a third attempt and we'll be able to replay all the, uh, oh, all, no. the all the things that you said and say, well, what do you think about that? <laughs> but thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So what did we what did we learn from that? <laughs> I think I think the the salient points to me are Jim's growing gloominess and the fact that the world wasn't looking fantastic last December but it now looks a bit more ominous. Yeah, and interest rates higher for longer. Yes, and the fact that all the indicators are now set to the slightly negative settings. I'm always fascinated by the debate about how much a debt an economy can bear. And I personally, uh, I, can't, I don't know if you remember back in 2009, American economist Ken Rogoff and his co-author Carmen Reinhart came out with a thing called This Time It's Different, where, yeah. they, where they proved mathematically that, that the economy couldn't bear more than 90% of debt to GDP before everything went wrong. Yes. And well, it, it uh, turned out the equation was wrong. It turned out the <laughs> equation was wrong. And there is the Japanese economy uh, bumbling along up 250%. So there is no natural ceiling yeah. to this. Yeah. But the equation is that if you are borrowing, which is what pushes up the debt, mm. if the economy is growing faster than your rate of increasing debt yep. then you will survive yes if it's not in other words if the economy is not growing as fast as the debt is increasing in the end it will overwhelm you and you will default yes i suppose the question for the uk and to some extent also for continental europe particularly less so the us is what's the answer is the answer to do what some would advocate, which is to dramatically cut public spending, if it's possible to do so, or do you try and find ways to grow faster? Yes, well, growth is the key, of course, but you can't just turn it on. Growth is what happens out of the, at the end of the sausage machine, is yes. what comes out from what you put in, in yes. terms of regulations, tax levels, encouragement, all the other things which push people to try and make two sheaves of wheat grow where only one grew before. Right. And I suppose the only point I'd make is that in a world where there is growth, it's easier to persuade people not to think about things incredibly distributionally, i.e. about protecting their own little piece, as opposed to growing the whole. Because basically, if they think there's less and less to go around, they're basically going to be more protective of their own little patch. Yeah, which is in some ways which is where, where we we've are. Got to. I think that's where we are. Yeah. So I suppose last point from from the conversation is Jim basically seems to be making an argument for sitting tight right now because everything's so uncertain. So good luck with that. Keep uh, <laughs> close to cash, I would say. Okay, there's the, there we are there. Take independent advice, obviously, before acting on anything Neil says. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.